pressure can be deadly. Pressure can be deadly, even at a soccer game. The date was April 15th, 1989. The place was Sheffield, England. The occasion was the FA Cup semifinal football match between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest. The game was stopped just a few minutes into the match because tragedy unfolded. 96 people and some 766 others were injured. Those 96 died. It was the worst disaster in British sporting history. It's known as the Hillsborough Disaster. What was the cause? There was no gunman. There was no food poison contamination at the concession stands. There was no stadium collapse. Pressure is what caused their deaths. Intense pressure. Those who died were stuck, pinned between the metal fence gate and thousands of fans pushing behind them for a good seat. They were crushed and suffocated. The pressure from the masses. Since the Hillsborough disaster, stadiums have been built differently ever since. Pressure can be deadly. But that's sports. The pressure can be even higher and the stakes can be even higher on the streets of our nation as a culture war rages. Ethical pressure. Ethical pressure. The virtues that would relieve ethical tension, those virtues like humility, honor, respect, dignity, recognizing people made as being in the image of God, human dignity, those things have been abandoned from our public square. And thus, we don't know what America is becoming, but we do feel increasingly pushed to the margins, to the edge, the moral fringes. And it's like we're wedged between that firm iron gate of our biblical conviction and the swell of a moral revolution by the masses pressing against us. Does God have anything to say about the pressure that you and I face Not when we're gathered together, but when we depart from this gathering. We go about our lives during the week, hoping that we will gather together again. Does God have anything to say to Christians in an increasingly hostile society? What's his instruction? Well, praise be to God, he does have things to say. That's what we're looking at this morning. Turn with me to 1 Peter 2, 11-25. It's on page 1015 on the Bible under the seat in front of you. As you're turning there, just a little bit of context. Peter is writing to scattered Christians. He said at the end of the letter that he wants to strengthen them so they'll stand firm in the true grace of God. Chapter 1, he talked about salvation and holiness. Those are both part of our calling. If we're called to salvation, we're also called to holiness. And then here in chapter 2, he talked about if we're called to salvation and holiness... We're called to gather together in a community as a church. And then here in the second half of the second chapter, he's showing another implication. How we live amidst the pressures of society also matters as Christians. It's a fascinating section of God's word. And I pray that you'll come to see that God has given us instruction for our dealings with society. How we walk wisely and honorably in this present age. And I pray we see his wisdom here because it changes the way we sojourn in this world. So let's read 
God's word, beginning in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask now that you would illuminate our minds with your instruction here. Father, help us to make sense of where you've placed us in the world. Help us to be Christians who commend the gospel by how we live. Instruct us, teach us, encourage us, rebuke us. We know your word is living and active, and so we ask now, Lord, that you would do work in our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the major claim of this passage that we just looked at is that Christians engage society best by following the example of Christ, living honorably, doing good under the weight of cultural pressure. In other words, we expect suffering, and we keep doing good in all circumstances. The Christian who disregards the instruction of this passage runs the risk of dishonoring Christ, runs the risk of not understanding what it's like to sojourn through society. The Lord's calling us to understand many things here, but we're going to wrap our thoughts around three big ideas, three things that God wants us to understand, and it's this. First, we must understand that it's personal. Understand that it's personal. Verses 11 through 12. Secondly, we must understand that it's political. This is verses 13 through 17. It's political. And then thirdly, 
we have to understand that it's painful. It is painful. This is verses 18 through 25. It's painful. All right, let's begin. It is personal. Verses 11 and 12 show that. It's personal even though we're only in society for a little bit on our way to heaven. Just a little bit. It's still personal. He said there at the beginning in verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. This is the language that Peter used to start the entire letter. In chapter 1, verse 1, he says that they're elect exiles of the dispersion. They're spread apart in vast regions of the Roman Empire, and they're temporarily moving on on their way to heaven. And then something striking happens. In verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, so that when they speak against you as evildoers. That's an outward attack. That's outward pressure on the Christian. The world will always call evil what it doesn't understand or what it doesn't agree with. But the question remains, why were the Christians in this letter that Peter's writing to, why were they spoken of as evil? Why were they spoken of as evil? It's a brand new religion. Time hasn't foretold yet how it's going to turn out. It's a new religion, a new cult, it seems like. Many people look at them like a cult. But the, the Christians were spoken against as evil. It wasn't if they would be spoken of as evil, it was when. Peter says when they are spoken against as evildoers. So what kind of things were said about them? Well, I could think of a few. They were called atheists. They were accused of incest. They were accused of being anarchist traitors, and they were accused of being cannibals. Here's what it would sound like. Atheists. Because you Christians, you don't worship the Roman pantheon of mythological gods that we worship. They were called atheists. They just worshiped one god. They were called incest, full of incestual behavior, gross immorality. And they were labeled with this attack because they would call their groups brothers and sisters. They would lavish love on one another. They would conduct baptisms. People would watch the baptism. So they think, are these Christians bathing together? They thought they were filthy. They were called anarchists and traitors because they spoke openly of their allegiance to God and subservient allegiance to Caesar, to the king, the emperor of Rome. And they were called cannibals because they partook of the Lord's Supper, which symbolized eating the flesh and blood of Christ. And those on the outside misunderstood and thought they were literally eating raw flesh and blood. So the Christians had all this verbal attack and pressure upon them. But Jesus said in John fifteen eighteen, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. And then two chapters later in John 17, Jesus said, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them. So this is often summarized. Christians are in the world, but not of the world. You've heard that before, likely. We're in the world, but not of the world. We will suffer because we are sent by Christ. 
and the slanderous and malign speech that we receive from those in this present age is to some extent unavoidable. But it's not purposeless. God's glory is in view. Look at how verse 12 finishes. It says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This day of visitation language, visitation is used in Luke 19.44. Jesus is speaking of coming judgment that's about to collapse on a person. And so here when Peter says that they, this is those who don't know God, will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, he's meaning at the present moment right now, the good gospel deeds that you do are seen as evil. But there's coming a day where God will visit a person. When God visits a person, he opens their eyes to the truth of who he is, the righteousness of the gospel, the reality of his glory. So he's saying here that even though a non-believer sees your deeds as evil, one day they will be forced to see them as good. Either God visits a person before they die in a saving way, he shows his glory, and that person who then becomes a believer, trusting in the Lord Christ, has bowed their knee to the Lord, and they recognize, whoa, these gospel things are good things. They're not evil deeds. Or there will be those who visit God, and it happens the day they die, in judgment. And they are forced to bow their knee. And God vindicates his glory, reversing the wrong perspective that they had. He shows that these gospel deeds are good. So be encouraged, Christian. Your good deeds matter. Even if people are misunderstanding what you're doing, even as you're following the scriptures, the world will put pressure on you to say, you are evil because you obey the Lord. But God says here, one day, I'm going to right that wrong, and all the deeds that are spoken falsely about as evil will be spoken rightly about as good. We can take heart. But the pressure is not just outside upon us. The pressure is actually inside us, bearing down on our soul because of sin. Did you notice verse 11? Verse 11, it says, Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This is why it's so personal. It's personal because those in the world will speak evil of you, but it's personal because your own heart is working against your soul to keep you from the Lord. Even for the Christian, there's pockets of darkness that are still remaining. This is our sanctification. Our hearts are, are made new. There's rebellion still to be crushed. Every day you wake up is a new day for the Lord's spirit and kingdom to take up new ground in your heart. It's personal because sin attacks us. It's an all-out war for your desires. He says there it's a war against your soul. So this is a war for what you're passionate about. It's a war for what you love. It's deceptive. You might think, I'm not in a war. I'm doing something that feels really, really good but it's contrary to God's word. This, this doesn't feel like war. This feels great. It's a spiritual war that wants to destroy your soul for what you love, what you find satisfaction in, where your delight is. That's where the war is fought. It's a battleground of joy, either in sin 
you find delight or in your Savior. That's where the war is being fought. These passions of the flesh that Peter speaks of, it's not a new term for him. In chapter 1, verse 14, he said, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but be holy. And then again, in chapter 4, verse 2, he says to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So in each case, human passions are set against God's will, God's holiness, his glory, our knowledge of him. Our human passions are set against that. And he says here, Christians, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Don't let them grasp you. Don't touch them. Don't give in to them. So these passions of the heart, these lusts of the heart, yes, they can be sexual, but it can also be in the realm of pride, a lust for pride, a lust even for power, a lust of ease and sloth, maybe a lust of food or anger, a lust of idolatry, worshiping the creature over the creator. A window into this world is given to us in Galatians 5, that battle of the flesh and the spirit. This is why the New Testament says, fight the good fight. It's a real battle. This is why Ephesians 6 says, put on the armor of God, and it lists out all the ways we can be ready to fight a battle. This is why Romans 8.13 says, that living according to the flesh is death. But if you put to death, that's battle language, war language, if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So this war rages for the vitality of your soul, your soul's comfort, communion, and fellowship with the Lord. And Peter is wanting these Christians to know, listen up, Christians. There's pressure coming on you from the outside. But first and foremost, before that pressure is a pressure inside of you to enjoy and love your sin. And that's what's most deadly. He said there, that the passions of the flesh wage war against their soul. He didn't say the verbal threats and accusations are what damage their soul. Their sin. Christians, we can't take our eyes off of our battle and fight with sin, even as we look at what's going on in the world. We're vigilant in both areas. There's a lot of application here. First, we could see the lie of personal autonomy in our culture. Our culture says, if it feels good, do it. And then our culture takes it a step further with consent. If it feels good and somebody wants to do it with you or they endorse what you're doing, then it must be okay. But that same sword is then turned against you because then you're spoken of as an evildoer if you participate and still try to claim the truths of Christ. We have to take sin seriously. It's a battle. It's a war. This is more than just a self-improvement or a tip for better living. This isn't like a video game where you get extra lives. Your soul, you only have one soul, and you're only mortal on this earth one time before eternity. Everything you're doing matters in this fight for your soul. No one wages a war by accident. Ask any veteran here who's been in combat, who's been up close with combat. A war is never waged by accident where you just kind of happen along. A war must be waged with strategy, intentionality. So Christian, consider the strategy of 
what you might do to fight your sin. There's many strategies. There's strategies of scripture memorization. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Are you taking up that strategy? Or are you trying to come up with your own? There's the strategy of, of reading good books from those who have fought well in the past. Something like John Owen in The Mortification of Sin or, or Jerry Bridges. He's got a book called Respectable Sins. Those who have fought well. And scripture says that we should imitate those who imitate Christ and who fought well. Or what about the strategy of confession? Bringing your sin out into the light. It says in James 5.16, Confess your sin to one another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. The Bible hasn't left us at our wits end to know what to do about sin. It's, the Bible's told us these are strategies. Make use of them, Christian. So I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, if you see those in our midst struggling with sin, use scriptural strategies to help them. Let the Bible help you fight this war. So Peter's helping these Christians understand this is very personal. He doesn't want them to panic over the pressures. He wants them to not slacken in their fight against sin. And he doesn't want them to overlook verse 11 and jump into some cultural engagement. Because think about how deadly it is if, if we engage the world in some way and yet we're careless about our personal holiness, our sanctification. Skipping verse 11 would cause a Christian to run the risk of hypocritical cultural engagement. Even worse, destroying their own soul in the process. So don't underestimate the power of your personal sanctification as you trust Christ as you look more like him on the watching world around you, your character and conduct do have cultural impact. Expect to be spoken ill of, be spoken falsely about, verbally accused even. But live holy despite of that. Secondly, we have to understand it's political. It's not just a personal matter that we're dealing with. Things people say, our own sin. We live in a society that is political. Every society on earth has political components to it. You can't avoid this. We have to strive to be excellent citizens in the world we live in. That's what this section is about. This is verses 13 through 17. We know that this is political because the first two verses, 13 and 14, and the last two, 16 and 17, speak about earthly authority and how we deal with it. And then verse 15 picks up this same theme again that people are speaking things that you don't like, things that are mean, things that are hateful. Look at what it says in verse, verse 15. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Hmm. I don't know about you, I love that verse. It is God's will that people who are talking nonsense and foolishness we are supposed to silence them as Christians. What a great verse. Does this mean, though, that we, we pick up guns and weapons? Does this mean that we silence them by launching an even harder verbal attack where we put them down and we're in a shouting match? Not exactly. The reason we know that is God has sandwiched verse 15 with verses before and after that tell us, here's how we silence those who are so foolish. Here's how we silence them. As citizens, we obey laws of the state. 
hope that doesn't sound too simple, because it is simple. We obey the laws of the state. I wonder about those who shouted at the Christians, anarchists, traitors, disloyal to Caesar. I wonder how that was thought and talked about when they found out these Christians are some of the first to pay their taxes and they pay them in full and they're not putting up a fight about paying their taxes. That would silence their accusations that they're just trying to have anarchy and be disloyal to Caesar. Verse 13 tells us the exact instruction for what God has for us. Put your eyes on verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. If you were getting this letter for the first time as a new Christian in the first century, you would think, wait a minute. How in the world are we going to show everyone else that Jesus is the ultimate king that we give our allegiance to if we're just obeying all these other earthly authorities? Guys, I think Peter has just forgotten what's going on. That's, that's not what's happening. Peter shows he knows the Lord is on the throne. Look at verse 16. He says, live as people who are free, living as servants of God. He knows ultimately we're free to the world's systems. We're, we're allegiant to God alone. And then in verse 13, he says, for the Lord's sake. So he's clearly keeping the Lord in mind, even as we submit and obey the authorities on earth. Governmental authority is good. God has ordained it. There is so much good that comes from even our government, government in our society. But we can't be blind to our responsibility here. God is not saying obey the government in every situation. He doesn't use the term obedience. Did you see the term Peter used in verse 13? He said be subject to. There's a difference in language. Subject unto is different than pure obedience. Being subject to is a a yielding to, a respect for, a complying with. In so far as it doesn't contradict the Lord's revealed word. There's an echo of this in Romans 13, 1 through 7. You don't have to turn there, but listen how the New Testament, Paul, echoes the same thought that Peter's saying. He said, Be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And then in verse 4, he says, the authorities are God's servants. The authorities are God's servants. I can think of the one time in my life where some of the highest authority in our land suddenly came upon me, and I freaked out. But then I constrained myself and thought, wait a minute. They're, They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. I think, here's what happened. My wife and I were in D.C. This is before we had our daughter. We were eating at a place called We the Pizza. That's what it's called. Play on words there for Washington, D.C. We're eating at We the Pizza. We're sitting in the back of the restaurant. At the back of the restaurant, it's a long L shape. There's a stairwell that goes up to a huge upstairs banquet party room. We're sitting in the back right by that stairwell. I can see the windows of the restaurant from the back. All of a sudden, true story, 
three black SUVs pull up to the front doors, block off the doors and the street. Guys get out wearing dark suits. They rush up to the door. They put a pop-up metal detector at the door. This felt like a James Bond movie. If anything could make me look away from my pizza on the plate and away from my beautiful wife, it was this. And these men come running into the restaurant. They post up at every door and window. They post up by the back stairs just a few feet from our table. They are secret service agents, secret servicemen. And once they're posted up and everything's in place, out comes the first lady. It was Michelle Obama at the time. A string of people come in. They file along in a single line. They go straight in. They turn around the corner. They go straight up the stairs. They get in. The doors are closed. And it was like everybody who had frozen up in the restaurant immediately went back to what they were doing. And I remember asking my wife, what just happened? And she was like, you know, Michelle Obama is pretty, but she's really pretty. I just saw her in person. And I, could, I didn't even see her go by. I had to ask my wife, who was it? Who was the important person? I was so fixated on those secret servicemen and what they might do and what they might do if I make a wrong move. The authority was immediately felt. So this might be easy to do in a pizza restaurant. But this authority that that the government, that the state, that our community wields, isn't so easy to obey in the daily grind sometimes. Does this sound easy to you? Verse 13. Is God's word ever easy? I know that when I was preparing for this passage... I thought, hmm, this, let me move on to some other verses. This doesn't seem that hard. Be subject to the authorities, obey them. And then I began to think about friends that I have, um, friends who are, are minorities. My friend Isaac, who I met this week at Dallas, the Southern Baptist Convention. Isaac and I were friends in D.C. The things that have happened to him as a minority. Christians, we have to understand that those who received this letter in the first century, they were minorities. The Christian faith was in the minority amidst a majority culture that was hostile to it. So I just want to open your mind for a second and say, you have to think like a minority to grasp the the emotional weight of these verses. Christians were in the minority here. A tone of suffering is woven throughout this passage here because of verse 14. Do you see how moral verse 14 is? How ethical verse 14 is? It says that governors or emperors, kings, different authorities, are sent to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. In other words... Authorities always work for what they see as good. Praise God that so often what they see as good is part of the common grace of God, and it is good for many people, and it leads to flourishing. But if this verse sounds domesticated and tame, this submitting to authorities to you, it's not tame and easy when the authorities use their power wrongly, when they're not using their authority well, or even if, a majority authority is pressing upon a minority. 
That's when it's difficult. So is disobedience to the authorities ever wrong? This passage raises that question. If the government is moving on the lines of verse 14, punishing good and evil, that means every political action matters because it has moral implications. So what do Christians do when we're keenly aware of those realms where authority of the state and the authority of God's word don't overlap and they're at odds? What do we do as Christians when we see that and we feel that and experience that? Can we ever disobey? Well, when the authorities are mandating something contrary to our religious duty to obey God, the very man writing this letter showed by his life that there are times. Acts 4.18. The apostles were told to silence their voice of the gospel, of speaking God's word in Acts 4. And they said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must decide, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Other times in the scripture, like we read earlier in the service in the book of Daniel, Daniel and the other men, they wouldn't worship the king and bow down to his idolatrous image. They were told, you have to worship this image. And they said, no, we're not going to. But they did it in a respectful way. They weren't just rash and haphazard. Exodus chapter 1, we see the Egyptian midwives not following the commands of Pharaoh to kill the children of the Israelites. Even in the book of Esther, when she goes before the king, she was risking the political laws of the time for the justice and flourishing of people in her nation. Or even we think of the wise men in Matthew chapter 2. Herod said, return to me, I want to worship the child. And they discerned and they found out, they were warned by a dream, don't go that way. So they disobeyed. I know we have these scriptural examples, but often in the complexities and the fog of the culture wars, it's hard to know what what do we do as Christians when we see injustices. There's so much tension, so many attitudes and convictions about the Bible that converge on things like immigration policy and and racial injustice and human rights. Christians, we need to strive, like these Christians were, to be told that the government is always making moral actions. There's no such thing as a neutral action by the state, by the civil authorities, that's not moral. That's an illusion. Peter's helping them see that in verse 14. He wants to move them from a state of ignorance to a state of awareness. And we might even move to a state of intentionality as we do good works that highlight the gospel. Because in verse 15, he said, By doing good, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. By doing good. Peter summarizes this all so concisely, verse 17. It's a very helpful verse. Look at verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So this guards us from a political utopianism. It keeps the Lord ultimate and central. See how it said fear the Lord? It doesn't say fear the emperor. It says fear God. But it simultaneously guards us from rejecting the good that comes from authority. It guards us from rejecting the good that comes from wise and just politics. 
So if you ever hear a Christian say, politics, it's all good, be careful of that. Or if you meet some Christian that's got all these strong impulses and say, everything's going wrong in society, that's not good either. We're told here, fear God, honor everyone, honor the emperor, love the brotherhood. So five practical things we can do. The third point of this sermon will be shorter than the first two, but let's talk application for a second. I don't want us to leave this political idea just left hanging in the air. How do we, on the ground, with our feet moving through society as sojourners, how do we live this out? Is there any hope for us? Yeah, five things. Number one, pray for those in authority. Pray for those in authority. Liked or unliked, we pray for them. So Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, pray for your leaders. We pray for them because 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2 says, First of all then, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So we pray for those in high positions. We pray for the mayor of Austin. Right now it's Steve Adler. We can pray for him and the 10 council members who make so many decisions for this area and the surrounding people. We can pray for the Austin police chief, Brian Manley, who was freshly appointed just this last week. We can pray for state, national, local levels. This means we can pray for our homeowners association, that they would use their authority well. We can pray for school teachers. We pray for traffic laws to be obeyed. If that sounds above you to pray for that, are you doubting that your prayers will be answered? You know when you're driving by and you see those signs on the interstate and it shows how many fatalities have happened this year? Pray that people will obey traffic laws. We even pray nationally for things like the United Nations and our, our, our government as they relate to other nations. You can pray for your employer. Be a Christian who doesn't get to heaven one day and says, God, I really forgot that you said 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. Be a Christian who says, Lord, I did my best to pray for the authorities that are around me, at work, at home, at school. Number two, submit to even the smallest civic laws that you may find annoying because they matter. So this is, for instance, if you go to the grocery store and you see a handicapped parking spot and you think, I'm just going to be a minute, and you just whip into the spot and you're not handicapped, you don't have a disability, don't park there. That is an implication of this verse right here. Be subject to every human institution. God ordained that for your good and the good of others. Third application, suspect your own capacity for injustice, cultural blind spots that you may have. Talk to your church members. Talk to those who don't look like you, have the same status that you might have in your bank account, higher or lower. Those who don't have the same color of skin as you. Those who don't share your same preferences. And you might say, Pastor, how am I going to go talk to people from all different walks of life and in the world. Talk to people in your church. Inside the church, outside the church, we need to take time to truly listen 
to perhaps reconsider, confess, to learn from those voices in society that are not like our own. And this is a white guy speaking who has always grown up in the majority in this country. So I'm saying, let's listen to voices that aren't necessarily like ours, voices from the minority side. If you identify with a political party, one way that you can suspect your own capacities for a blind spot is you have a responsibility to know your political party's strengths. You have to know a political party and what their strengths are, but you also have to know the weaknesses of a political party and the idolatrous trajectories of a political party. We have to be aware of just quickly attaching Jesus' name to a particular agenda or political party. Now, there's some issues in the scripture that are just crystal clear. The dignity, the sanctity of human life, and abortion. We don't have to hesitate. Can I put Jesus' name forward with a fight to, to end the killing of the unborn? Yes. That's a clear scriptural issue. But in the whole host of other issues that things become less clear, they're jagged, or there's more fog, this is why we need one another to talk about how do we apply the scriptures. So the fourth application, don't wait for a church sign-up list or a sign-up list by the civic leaders in your community before you'll begin to do good deeds. This passage tells us to do good deeds. We all have experiences, things that we see up close more than others would see up close. Our proximity and our awareness to certain issues give us moral responsibility. So we shouldn't throw our hands up if a certain Christian is seemingly blind to another area of ethics and morality. Have the courage and the boldness before God to fear God and not man to talk to that brother or sister, to try to help them see. Last application. Consider where you are on the spectrum of cultural engagement. So listen carefully to this. Some are on one end of the spectrum where Christians are so overzealous and so passionate to see immediate change and social renewal that they can be blinded by their own ambition or blinded by how much work and effort it takes and how many other things are touching upon a structure and institution. They can be so blinded by that that they rush forward unwisely and do more damage than good in the name of justice. So if you're a Christian on that end of the spectrum where you're always thinking about how can I change culture, I see this injustice and this, and I've got to change this and this, this passage bridles you. It shows you there's a lot of other responsibilities like obeying the good laws, fighting sin in your life, and it bridles you to see your responsibilities even as you recognize good works to be done. And there's another end of the spectrum that some Christians fall on where they're not overzealous to change things, they're actually quite comfortable. They're okay with certain areas that they shouldn't be okay with. Maybe they're passive. They've got a hands-off approach to society, living insulated, not recognizing injustices right around them. Let this passage awaken you, Christian. Let it awaken you that every action by an authority is moral, according to verse 14. So be a Christian who has a filter, a biblical filter. When you hear of laws or read of laws, 
or see things happening, filter it through, is this helping human flourishing? Is this going against certain scriptural commands? Is this helping people fear God and take responsibility and work hard, or is this enabling something else? It's complex. These challenges remain even as we work for change. But be encouraged. Don't feel beat up that this passage is trying to chew you up and spit you out no matter which side of the spectrum you're on. Take heart that God's instruction here transcends all cultures, all societies in every era of human life. This was true then when Peter wrote it. It's true today. And until Jesus returns, it's going to be true for whatever cultural situation you find yourself in. There's wisdom here. But what happens when there's no immediate change? When you feel trapped or you see a situation that you can't get out of? That's why verse 18 to 25 say, number three, it's painful. The pressures of culture are painful. Verses 18 to 25. Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, the harsh, the cruel. Peter knows that it can feel suffocating. He's speaking here of servants. So this is a household term. It's not the same as bondservant. It's not the same as slave. It's a household term. And we would do well to remember that the servants he's talking about, this is not like slavery in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century America. It's not like that. It didn't start out by something race-based, and it didn't start out with kidnapping. It's, it's not like that. Rome didn't have servants who all looked like the same way or talked the same way. However, these servants didn't have legal rights. Their masters, whether they were just or unjust, determined the quality of their daily life. And they couldn't just jump out of a bad situation. Those who were servants, perhaps they were paying back a debt. They couldn't just jump out. They can't switch jobs like we might today. And Peter is writing to them, and notice the fact that God speaks to those who are maligned and pushed to the edge and seemingly forgotten. God speaks to them. He speaks to the servant, not to the master here. Did you catch that? And he says that same word, be subject to your masters. With all respect. This is painful, brothers and sisters. This is painful because we intensely image Christ through suffering, even though none of us wants to suffer. We have been called to use our suffering as a platform to highlight the gospel. Peter tells them, and it's true for us, we need to stay mindful of God when this happens because God sees everything. Verse 20 tells us God sees it all. That word for gracious in this passage could also be translated commendable. So God sees it as a gracious, commendable thing when we endure unjust suffering. He's watching all of it. He's going to right every wrong, even as we we don't want to suffer. We recognize, mindful of him, we have a unique way we can now showcase Christ. He wants them to understand endurance is needed. Did you see that word endurance? Verse 19, the end of it. One endures sorrows. Endurance is needed because change often happens slowly, slower than we might expect, and our suffering seems to make time slow down and go in slow motion. 
Peter is helping them understand, even though they endure, he's not saying that it's okay. He still calls it injustice. But the key for this entire passage of how personal, political, painful, all this is, the key here is verses 21 and following. Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow his footsteps. It's fascinating. That word for example in the first century was used of a school teacher who would set out letters for students to then trace upon as they learn their letters. That's where we get the word example from. So when he says follow the example of Christ, he's not saying look at that example and admire it from a distance. Look at that example and tell people about it but never be willing to imitate it. He says in verse 21, this is what you've been called to. He's left you an example. That's something we trace over, we imitate. And just in case we don't know what the word example means, I love how Peter says, that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When the pressure was most intense on Jesus, what did he do? He prayed. He prayed even though he sweat drops of blood. But what did Peter do, the man writing this letter, when the pressure got intense? He pulled out his sword in the garden and chopped off another man's ear in defense of the injustice that was taking place. Jesus told him to put his sword away. Peter then, later that night, denied Christ three times. The threats and accusations and questions towards him, he met back with reviling, even cursing, a verbal attack. This is why Jesus said to Pilate in John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So Peter knew what it was like to falter here. He doesn't want the Christians he's writing to make the same mistake. So pressure can be deadly, brothers and sisters. It was deadly for Christ. The authorities of Rome, even the religious authorities of the day, all came pressing down upon him. It was personal. People spat in his face and reviled him. And it was painful. He was scourged and beaten, and then, not only that, he was nailed to a cross. Why did he let it all happen? He could have stopped it. He had all power. He could have stopped it. Well, he didn't stop it because even though pressure can be deadly, he knew this pressure can offer salvation. I can take the pressure of God's wrath, take it upon myself, absorb all of God's wrath, and be an atoning sacrifice. I can be substitutionary atonement for the world. And that wasn't a new idea that Jesus just suddenly thought of and came up with it was the plan before the ages began of all time so Peter uses the language of Isaiah 53 here and he speaks of Christ who never sinned in verse 24 he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds we've been healed So I want to make sure the gospel is clear this morning. If you're not a follower of Christ, 
and you feel like you're doing okay with the pressures of society, I have news for you. There's a day of visitation coming where the pressure of God's judgment will come down upon you when you take your last breath. Are you ready for that? To those who aren't believers and you do feel the pressures of society squeezing the air out of you, why not turn to Christ? He's the only one that can take the pressure off and make your soul safe, even as your physical life may still encounter risk. Our souls are safe. We know that because of verse 25. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So just like verse 11 spoke of our souls being in a war, now our souls are right up next to the shepherd who protects us spiritually. He closes the loop. This is about your soul. It's not about the culture as much as it seems like it. It's about your soul. Christian, are you near the shepherd and overseer of your soul? He'll give you wisdom with how to handle things in the culture. He will hold us fast even when the world rages around us. The pressure is deadly, but the pressures of culture are what Jesus used purchase your salvation. God can use all things for good. Let's trust him in that. Let's entrust our souls to a faithful creator while we do good in the midst of an unpredictable world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this instruction. We thank you for your truth. Help us, Lord, be wise Christians as we navigate the challenges this world throws at us. Help us endure suffering well. Help us be good citizens, Lord, who obey laws. We praise you, Lord. We thank you for the hundreds of good civil laws that are in place in our society that help us. We thank you, Lord, for so many biblical principles that helped determine many laws in our nation at the very beginning. We praise you for that. Help us, Father, to see our soul is in a war. Help us to fight well. Lord God, we love you. We thank you that you hold us fast. And we praise your name this morning because of it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.